I'm Joe Devine and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. A quick note before we get started with today's podcast. The series is now available to listen to on iTunes and SoundCloud as well as YouTube. If you're listening on YouTube, a link to our iTunes page will be provided in the description. High intensity, high pressing, high quality. Under Maurizio Pochettino, Tottenham Hotspur have morphed into a title-challenging side in the Premier League. Today, I'm joined by Alex Stewart to take a more in-depth look at Tottenham's tactics. Alex, the video highlights the two main formations used by Pochettino this season and how the team can uh, situationally shift between the two during a match when necessary. This is something we haven't touched on too often in our Tactics Explained videos, but presuming that you have um, a technically proficient squad, shifting between different formations fluidly during a match is an option. Uh, if teams can do this, why do we so often see teams sticking to, to principles such as consistent number of players in defence or midfield, or you know, if more potential benefit could be derived from a more fluid approach? So in, in the, the example with Tottenham today is that they can... You know, essentially shift between a four and a, and a three at the back, with the with the fullbacks pushing up and the deeper central midfielder pulling back at times. Right? Yeah, I think there's two answers to this. The first is that Tottenham's squad is unusually uh, well balanced for both approaches. The the fullbacks, um, both sets of fullbacks. In fact, the the reserve fullbacks Trippier and Davis, I would include in this as well, are capable of playing as wing backs. So they can either play as fullbacks in a back four or they can play as wingbacks either side of a back three. You've also got in Wanyama and Eric Dyer players who are very capable of, of dropping back uh, to that space, the halfback space in between the centre-halves and Dyer is a converted fullback or centre-back. So shifting to three at the back there for them is a lot easier. I think the way their squad is set up allows them to do it more naturally because obviously you have to coach the transition between three at the back and four at the back, whether that's as a starting formation or something that you adapt to during a match. In terms of a more fluid approach, I think going forwards, um, if you look at uh, Jonathan Wilson's uh, Inverting the Pyramid, towards the end of that book, he talks about how four six zero is potentially a sort of formation of the future and that you have a, a back four that are pretty consistently such. And then ahead of that, you have six players who effectively can can rotate and play in all the various positions. You'd probably have at least one central midfielder that sits, but you could look at Luciano Spalletti's Roma in 2007-8. You could look at the way that Alex Ferguson deployed a front three for Manchester United uh, around the same sort of time. And, and you see that managers have sought to use a more fluid approach when their players are capable of doing that. So the interchange of positions, uh, whether they are forwards attacking midfielders, whether they are the ones that are bursting forward or dropping back. I think there's certainly a lot to be said for it because it makes defending harder, particularly if people are taking a man-oriented approach. But you need to have good players. Uh, and if you don't have players that are capable of appreciating those nuances tactically, that are fit enough, uh, perhaps that have already played in a number of different positions across the course of their career, 
then while it might be something that would be really nice for a team to do, it's something that they'll struggle with. It's interesting that you talk about uh, Jonathan Wilson's ideas about tactics in the future. I mean, I think when we look at setups like Tottenham's, it seems to me almost as if the team can be broken down into two blocks either side of the of the central midfielders. So, I mean, presumably the front four, or maybe even the front five, if we can use one of those central midfielders, can only interchange as frequently as they do because the central midfielders are filling in the gaps and shoring up against counter-attacks. And on the flip side, the central midfielders can only be afforded time uh, to focus you know, almost solely on those duties if the front players are, are talented enough to create opportunities at times independently of those central midfielders you know and so I suppose with that in mind you you know you touched on it just there I I think is you know is it that a a talented squad is is essential for developing that type of tactic I mean it's it sounds like it's not the sort of thing that we could maybe see recreated with a less technically minded team or perhaps more generally teams lower down the leagues yeah I think that's probably true I think uh talent isn't necessarily technique um and the two the two talents or three talents really that are required for the style of football are peak levels of fitness which you also bring in because Pochettino um is a, a high pressing manager so obviously you need to to have the fitness to press as well uh you need technique in terms of of being able to be particularly a central midfielder who can push forwards uh, and control the ball when there's less room to manoeuvre because you're playing closer to the back four. And you need a tactically intelligent squad so that if a player's pushing forward, then another player knows to drop back. If a player's cutting in from wide, then the fullback knows there's room to move forwards. These are all complex skills and they require teams to be together, train together for, for extended periods of time. You couldn't suddenly, I don't think, sweep into a side that weren't used to doing that sort of style and in the course of a couple of months get them doing it, even if they were very technically capable. I mean, you look at the issues that, that Pep Guardiola has had at, at Manchester City trying to get this sort of uh, positional play, interchanging play going with them, you know, that no one would say that the, the Manchester City squad was full of technically incompetent players but it's taken a significant period of time to get them to understand the the tactical side of it, the positional side of it. I think that's why if you look at teams that have done this consistently well over maybe the past six, seven seasons, you're looking at teams like Barcelona, where that style, that ability to interchange, to play in various positions is bred into those players right from the very beginning so that they have the technique to defend uh, suitably, but they can also push forward. They can control the ball. They work almost, almost instinctively. They work those kind of passing triangles that allow players to to push forward in front of them. And that style develops because they have been coached in it since they were six or seven years old at La Masia. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we have to remember with Spurs is just how quickly, really, uh, Pochettino has both got a team playing this style but also how quickly he's incorporated the the people who've only been at that team for maybe two or three seasons it's quite remarkable can we look at uh, Tottenham's near future then I mean you talked about how, how one of the elements that those players are required to have for that tactic to, to make sense and to, and to work on the on the pitch is to be at peak fitness and so if we look at Tottenham's squad now um, you know 
I suppose, aside from from their pulling power when they get into the transfer market and stuff, they they have you know an excellent squad there already. I think one of the you know most impressive things about Tottenham's squad is the depth in fullbacks. Um, and I think uh, one commenter, I can't remember who it was, on the on the YouTube video, you know, fairly made the point that both uh, Trippier and Davies, you know, would probably be starters in most other Premier League teams in, in terms of their quality in that position. Um, but if we look at the you know the next few years, we're talking about peak fitness. Do we think then that there's a sort of there's a timeline in which Tottenham you know need to I suppose hit their peak in terms of the the quality of the team, what they're going to be able to do um, before some of those players get a little bit older, or you know I suppose the the risk is that it's going to be difficult to replace some of them with like for like players or players who have the same you know levels of um, levels of quality and ability. Do you think you know the next three or four years we need to see Tottenham hit hit their stride in terms of winning the league, winning cups, or, or it might not happen? I think that's fair. Um, I think it's very very difficult to look at. Say if you compare um, football with rugby, for example, rugby with the World Cup works on four year cycles uh, internationally, but say for example the Six Nations, there's a year by year thing. So. You can cycle players' fitness, you can work up to a peak and have them ready to go for a one-month period or a two-month period every every year. Across the course of a season, you have to keep at least a core group of your players fit from August right the way through till May. And that is much, much harder, particularly when you're playing uh, a high-pressing style. And that's why, you know, if you look at coaches like... Um, Marcello Bielsa, Jurgen Klopp to an extent, um, there's often a, a fall off in performance of the teams that they manage towards the end of a season. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Jurgen Klopp maybe struggles when it comes to, to, to winning cups, because cups fall at the end of seasons often. So, you know, players are pretty exhausted by the time they get there. So depth of squad is crucial. Um, and, and in that regard, I think, yes, Spurs do currently have a lot of strength in crucial positions. I also saw an interesting uh, tweet thread earlier from uh, at Unfit for Purpose, who's a, a stats person, um, talking about Tottenham's recruitment and how they are still effectively in England, even though you know they they finished second in the league last season. They'll probably do the same again this season. Um, they're not punching at the same weight in terms of their recruitment potential. Uh, as certainly Chelsea, Manchester City, arguably Manchester United, Arsenal and Liverpool as well. So they, his advice, which I, I think is actually quite savvy, is to to target people like Toby Alderweireld, who would deem surplus to requirements at sides that are almost the best in their country, but not quite. Uh, Alderweireld was, was on loan for a season at Southampton and did very well. So he was a doubly sensible acquisition because he'd been proved in the Premier League on loan for one season, but then Atletico Madrid were quite happy to let him go. I think what that does is that causes Spurs, if they're looking in that sort of market, because they're not going to be able to to buy a Gareth Bale or a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Lionel Messi or a Mbappe or whoever else. It, it focuses them on acquiring exactly the right sort of player for the right sort of money and also chucking a significant amount of what they do have financially into time players and to long-term contracts. And that intelligence of acquisition 
means that they they aren't pressured to make the marquee signing. You know, when when you've got Arsenal fans clamouring to say, you know, you must sign the best attacking midfielder again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right player to, to buy. Um, and I think what Pochettino can do is he can sit there and say, right, actually what we need is a very specific type of central midfielder, a very specific type of, of centre-back. And by by scouting intelligently, scouting using metrics and not trying to just buy a big name, then he can probably keep that style of recruitment going. It's interesting that, and I think, you know, teams like Arsenal, Manchester United, uh, I suppose, are an example, and City and Chelsea as well, they're in a position where often supporters ask for those sorts of things and, and you know, want uh, the marquee signing. Uh, it's an indication that something's not going, you know, to plan at the club and I think in Tottenham's case this season obviously you say they finished second last season but I think finishing second this season it doesn't feel like an underachievement I know there's lots of uh you know supporters of rival clubs who are who'll be quick to um to joke that Tottenham haven't won the league again but I'm not really sure that you know that was ever the most realistic assignment I think if you given Spurs at the end of last season the opportunity to finish second again this year that's almost you know above above expectations so i think they're in um a slightly unique position in the top 4 at the moment where they're not really expected um to be winning so given that things are working on the pitch and given that there's a lot of trust in the manager the fans i suppose aren't, aren't really clamoring for that for that kind of marquee signing um talking of the squad we've mentioned fullbacks briefly already and we talk about them quite a lot on the podcast um and it seems that you know many high use in vogue sort of formations require the very high uh, highest quality fullbacks to be successful i, I want to ask you if if tottenham's fullbacks you know if the whole squad impress you um and i wonder also a slightly different question if you know the emergence of the importance of fullbacks in in modern formations in the last i suppose three or four years or maybe a little bit longer if you're looking outside of the premier league i wonder if 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 that might and the sorts of players who are playing in those positions that could uh, influence you know young people watching the game to want to be fullbacks when they grow up i think we saw recently in the last decade or so a glut of you know central midfielders and and players who play in that number 10 position perhaps as a result of players like Wayne Rooney or you know a a kind of a focus on attacking midfielders and i think you see that coming through even as recently as players like Deli Ali, you know. Um, and I wonder if you think maybe, given that fullbacks seem to be so integral to a lot of modern formations, whether we might, you know, start to see in the next five or ten years the, the same s- sorts of players coming out in that position. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about, you know, to me, if I look back at the Premier League, the first pair of fullbacks who who were really exciting and attacking in the way that you might describe a modern fullback to be were were Arsenal's um, Ashley Cole and Lauren, who neither of whom were defenders to start with. You know, they were converted midfielders and, and wingers. Um, and I think that that there's a degree to which the modern fullback often is either a, a converted wide but more forward player um or or is required to take on that role and and I think I think if you're a, a purist an old school kind of um observer of the game you might even bemoan the fact that that fullbacks possibly don't have defending as as high on their list of priorities as they used to I personally don't agree with that I think that's a reductive view but you know fullbacks are now spending 
a lot of time uh, if you look at, at sort of average possession maps for for most top level sides you'll find that the fullbacks are at least around the halfway line and for some sides in some games they are even higher um it's not uncommon particularly to see walker and rose for for spurs right up by the the byline in the position that you you might find a winger normally um i think that the the generic shift to the 4-3 uh, 4-2-3-1 um was was part of this because in that you either have a narrow attacking midfield three or even if it's a bit wider you're you're playing um wingers on their wrong feet so they were cutting this was a kind of Arjen Robin style uh that became very very attractive but in order to still provide width in that system you needed fullbacks that were capable of getting forwards and I think that's what has has created this incredibly athletic incredibly dynamic style of fullback play where you know they are effectively wing backs from the from the start and in many instances auxiliary wide midfielders or auxiliary wingers is that enough to inspire people to want to play that position i, I don't know because um uh, you know i don't know. people i guess people take up positions for different reasons don't they and it's it's still not very glorious i think Sometimes one of the things I like about what we do in these videos is is we highlight aspects of teams' play that might have escaped a lot of notice. You know, where Spurs are concerned, obviously Deli Ali, Harry Kane and Christian Eriksen get a lot of the plaudits. Um, but this system wouldn't work without the fullbacks. And, and I hope that the, the way that we made this video kind of highlights that and, and maybe encourages people to look at that more seriously. As we say, Tottenham's title challenge is probably over now. We're recording this a few days after their defeat to West Ham. Um, but for next season, Alex, uh, presuming Tottenham are going to stick with the same sort of setup, what what threatens them? You know, how might teams look to adapt next season to you know maybe even specifically counter Tottenham's threat? I think if you look at, I mean, particularly if they're playing three at the back and the way Chelsea played three at the back. The obvious way to to counter that is also to play through at the back yourself. Um, it's something that some teams have done. Uh, I mean, we've seen Hull try it this season. We've seen Watford do it fairly consistently. Arsenal have tried it a few times. And it does give you a kind of man-for-man marking of that system. Um, in terms of negating Tottenham properly, I don't know. I think... I think the difficulty is in tracking that that group of of players that that kind of coalesce up front and can interchange. So, Deli Ali, Eriksson, Harry Kane, Song Hyung Min, um, just working out a way of of dealing with that threat, possibly by by dropping deeper, possibly by pressing them more. Um, you know, it's Tottenham are a very good side. And and there are people who get paid a lot of money uh, to work out how to beat very good sides at football. Um, and I don't think there's necessarily a, a straightforward answer that I could give you now. Um, but but targeting those danger men, I think Tottenham's I think Tottenham's issues, like any overachieving side or any side that that consistently compete with the top four, because I don't think Tottenham are a top four side historically in that sense. Um, that we talk about in the Premier League is uh, retaining their players. I, I think the biggest threats to teams like Spurs are, and I would probably put Everton in this bracket, previously teams like Southampton as well, although they've not done well this season, 
the easiest way to beat them is almost off the pitch. It's to buy those players that make those sides work. Liverpool's um, tactic. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, <laughs> I think Liverpool are probably a bit more astute than than just trying to do that. You know, they 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 identify players that that fit their system apparently because of this uh, transfer cabal that they have, but. You know, if somebody if somebody comes in with an astonishing offer for Deli Alley or for Harry Kane or for Kyle Walker, you know, there's there's talk of of Walker and, and Man City being a possibility. Um Spurs still aren't in a position to compete financially. Um and those players know that they can make, you know, more money in terms of wages by by going somewhere else. Um Tottenham have put them all on long-term contracts which is why they would command pretty exorbitant fees but then if you're looking at the Man Cities and the Man Uniteds of this world they can pay exorbitant fees Um, and you know a player like Kyle Walker you might be able to buy a very very good right back right wing back for 70 million or whatever Spurs would get for him but it's having a player who can integrate into that system who knows the players who understands how Pochettino works and it would take it would take a very very good player time to get up to speed so you know I don't I don't think Spurs are going to be asset stripped by any stretch of the imagination because they're not Southampton but that's where the threat will come I think. Okay let's take a look at some of the user comments now Um, well to be honest Alex the comment section uh, for this particular video was essentially full of people talking about bottles um, or some variation of Tottenham bottling things. When I wrote uh, this down, I wasn't aware that this was a thing. Someone had since told me that after Tottenham's defeat to West Ham, um, the presenter on the Sky Sports programme said something about Tottenham bottling it. And I think perhaps that's where people have picked this up. But I, I wasn't really... I didn't think this was a thing. Is it a thing? Bottling is, I suppose, what somebody who is in analytics would refer to as an intangible. Um, Something that can't be measured. Uh, A loss of confidence or uh, becoming flaky when the pressure is on. I I personally think it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think that for whatever reason particularly in the Premier League era, Spurs and Arsenal have have got reputations for being flaky when it gets tough and bottling it, quote-unquote. Um, Spurs have pushed a very, very good Chelsea team, brilliantly coached by Antonio Conte, pretty much all the way this season. Um, and... Both teams have dropped points. Chelsea, I think Chelsea went 10 games without keeping a clean sheet and, and you know, lost at home. And this is, I think if, if you're on the wrong end of those things come the end of the season, people will look back and go, ah, it's because you bottled it, i.e. you lost confidence. But there's no real way of measuring that. I, I don't think you can necessarily look at a side and and infer that, that that is what has caused those results to happen. You know, sometimes West Ham play, they played a very, very defensive kind of 3-5-2 in that game, or 3-4-2-1 really. Um, they, they set up with a very, very strong, battling, gritty kind of midfield, and, and they ground out a victory. You know, that's if that had come halfway through the season, I don't think anyone would have noticed. Um 
it's it's a game in which a manager figured out a way of negating Tottenham by clogging up the midfield and it worked because they didn't find an answer. That doesn't mean that Spurs bottled their title challenge. So I suppose it, what we're saying is is that it's a kind of unscientific way of filling in those intangibles, maybe much in the same way that somebody might say um, religion is for answering the question of what happens after you die. <laughs> it's rather a... <laughs> It's rather a heavy reference for a football podcast. But yes, I think to an extent it is. I mean, okay, look, you you could look at, at certain things and maybe infer from those that there was some sort of uh, psychological change that had occurred in, in the way a team was playing. So if a team had been converting shots at 15% across the course of a season until it got to the final four games, five games, and they dropped to 5%, you might think that something had happened there. If they're creating chances at a huge rate and then that drops off, if they'd not made any errors up until that point and then all of a sudden their game is littered with errors, you know, which which are only measured if they lead to a shot or a goal, but you you could possibly suggest that confidence is part of that. It could be tiredness, it could be a loss of confidence, it could be the teams that happen to be their opponents because of the way the fixture list is is brought out. There might be teams that are set up in terms of their system or their squad to be a particular threat and it happens that you play them at that particular time. Um, so, you know, is is it a thing? Possibly. Is it something that we can measure and be assertive about? I don't think so. And if you look at it the way... It must be for us... So I'm sorry. That's all right. I was just going to say, if you look at the way Tottenham have played the rest of this season, I think it would be very hard to say that that they're a team that had anything approaching a fragility of confidence. It must be frustrating for, for statisticians, because I, I imagine, as a result of the way that the universe works, that data is available. We just don't have any way of gathering it or enough processing power to understand it, right? By that data, you mean... I mean, whether it's tiredness, whether it's confidence, you know, there must be uh, micro indicators for all of those things. But, uh, you know, with our current level of technology, Mm. we're unable to um, understand them. Yeah, I mean, I know in terms of, I mean, you're probably getting into stuff like biochemistry there um, to indicate, you know, how players are feeling. Maybe, you know, you might be able to infer that from hormonal balance or something. I genuinely don't know enough about biochemistry but i i do know that in terms of data acquisition in sport that that the physiological aspect of it is kind of the next frontier so already people have moved from talking about distance run into number of sprints and sprint intensity um and as things like gps tracking but also um on body in game monitoring and in training monitoring improve I think we'll start to see that as a whole other data set um, that is available. But I think it would only be available to clubs. You know, the information that's gathered by people like Opta or Gracenote, you know, the sort of the in-game metrics of, of passes and chances and that kind of stuff, that that can be available publicly in some sort of form. I think the stuff that's physiological and, and to do with with how players are, are performing physically is that, you know, clubs would lock that down. 
you might run into some human rights issues there as well, I think, if you start to make those things publicly available. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also very true. Listeroman says, I think you forgot about Dembele. Uh, running through the midfield, passing to Deli, uh, Deli Ali, Kane, Eriksson. A few people, meant well, a few people, quite a lot of people mentioned um, Moussa Dembele. Uh, what does he bring to, to Tottenham's play, Alex? And why did you leave him out? Um, I left him out because these videos are between five and six minutes long and you can't talk about everything. Um, you know, you could go into detail about such a degree of stuff, the the passing range of Aldeviral or whatever. So some people don't make the cut. My apologies to all the Musa Dembele fanboys out there and fangirls. Um, yeah, he, you know, he is obviously very important, as is every member of that side. Um, it starts at the back with Loris. It continues all the way through. So, Every player plays their role. Dembele is, I suppose he's a he's a link between. If we're talking about those, you know, a defensive unit and attacking unit, he's the bit that that conjoins those two directly by carrying the ball and passing. Um, he's hugely energetic. He's very good in the tackle. His uh, positional play and his uh, energy allow him to cover across if his central midfield partner does drop back into the halfback space. So yeah, he's he's crucial. Um absolutely. But but as I would say and stress, you know, with a team like Tottenham, every player from one till eleven is crucial to the way they play. Um so I can't because of time constraints and stuff, I can't include everybody in every video. Um my apologies for that. The Walter Samuel 21 says that the halfback uh, is genuinely one of the greatest positions in football. We we used this word when we referred to Eric Dyer in a specific circumstance. Do you agree? Do you like a halfback, Alex? Who doesn't like a halfback, Joe? So a halfback is, is a, a, in terms of nomenclature, it comes from right the way back from the 2-3-5. Um, the the fullbacks were the two that were closest to the goalkeeper, and then the halfbacks were were three players in the space between them. A, a, a wide halfback on either side, who then became a fullback as position shifted, uh, and the central halfback, who, depending on which team it was, took on either kind of a purely destructive role or something that almost anticipated um, the kind of the sweeper libero style, so that you know carrying the ball up into the midfield or, or raking long-range passing. Um, I would encourage people who've not read um, Jonathan Wilson, um, the Inverting the Pyramid book, to, to look at this because he's particularly good on that kind of early style of football and, and positions like the halfback. Um, I quite like it because I think it's, you know, it, it there's a defensive role there, but there's also a, a kind of almost a quarterback role in terms of, of passing the ball long um they need to have great positional awareness and you can see how players like for example Makaleli in the screening role that he performed for for Real Madrid and Chelsea was sort of a halfback Dyer does it um but then you get more passing halfbacks someone even say like Andrea Pirlo um sort of occupies that position without the defensive work so yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in that position, and it can be very interesting to look. It's one of those positions that, if it's played well, it can make the rest of the team tick. Uh, Ronaldo Owino says, "If Spurs played the sixty-plus matches Man United are playing with that high-pressing tactic, I can guarantee you that they would be nowhere near close to the top four. Um, the commenter goes on to 
mentioned tiredness. We've talked about that a little bit already. And he also mentions Europe, which is the final thing on my list for us to discuss, Alex. Um, because lots of commenters are asking about Tottenham's poor performance in the Champions League. W- w- what do you think about that? And why do you think you know that's so, I suppose, so different from their performances in the Premier League? So they played their European games, their home games at Wembley, um, which does, I think, have a have a negative impact in terms of atmosphere. So there, there is always that, and that will be an issue for them going forwards when the White Hart Lane Stadium move occurs. In terms of their Champions League group, um, I mean, they had Monaco in that group, who I think surprised everybody with how, how well they did, um, beaten semi-finalists. Bayer Leverkusen are a very handy side as well. Um, and finishing third in that group was actually, I you know, I don't think that was particularly bad um and then their knockout by ghent in the europa league a lot of that was was probably to do with the deli alley red card in the first half uh, in the home leg of that tie so it, there is something to be said for the fact that they kind of were unlucky in, in europe this time round i do think that they are one of the more tactically intelligent uh, sides in english football so it wouldn't surprise me if they went on to do well in Europe. Um, I think Europe is, you know, it has to be viewed almost, well, I mean, it is a cup competition, but, you know, it's a series of discrete games that that pose very unusual tactical conundrums. And it requires a very different way of thinking uh, about how to play than the kind of ebb and flow of a whole season where you can rotate players, you can rest players, you're, you're, facing teams that you're much more used to facing and that you can see playing your opponents that might play in a similar style much more regularly. Um, and I think the focus, English football, I think, is is quite insular, and this is maybe why um, managers like Pochettino or, or Wenger previously can, you know, because they're more outward-looking, they might have a, a greater appreciation of what's happening. But it's, you know, you're, you're, you're being posed tactical challenges that you don't come across all that regularly. So I think a, a side needs to mature into that um, and get used to that sort of thing. So Tottenham will be almost certainly in the Champions League next season. Um, and I would expect them to do a lot better if they can hold on to those key players because it, it requires experience, it requires maturity. I think it's something that we don't stress enough about this Tottenham side is is how young some of their key players are. You know, uh, Euro 2016, Deli Ali and Eric Dyer both qualified for the UEFA Young Player cutoff, which I think was about 22 and a bit at, at the time that the tournament was played. Harry Kane's barely a year older than that. Um, and many of them have been at the side for at most three seasons. You know, they, they haven't had, relatively speaking, they're not an old and experienced side and they haven't been playing together for as long as some of the other teams that have progressed further in Europe have done. So I think give them time. Um, I don't necessarily think it's all that much to do with pressing, um, although there is an argument to say that, you know, you need to kind of grow into fitness and they're perhaps not quite as as um, match fit at the beginning of the season to play in that style from the off. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against them to do much better next season. OK, uh, before we go, one last thing for us to announce. Um, Alex, myself and Paul Ansorge will be combining over the summer period, um, the off-season for Premier League fans, 
on a campaign about the history of the World Cup. Um, so some of Alex's tactical videos will be dedicated to examining the evolution of tactics uh, from 1930 all the way up to modern day. And in those tactical eras, Paul Lansorge is going to be picking out his favourite tournaments and creating brief history of videos uh, to complement those as well. Uh, some of the podcasts during that time will also likely be about that. So if you do have any uh, questions or any comments about your favourite World Cup or anything you'd like us in particular to cover, you can get in touch now and let us know. Um, you can do that in the comments on this video uh, or you can follow us on Twitter at UMAXITFootball, also UMAXITFootball on Facebook and do visit the editorial site as well, UMAXIT.com because there's five or six fabulous articles going out every day there um, and we'd love you to read them. Uh, so Alex Stewart, thank you very much and I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you, Joe.